The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone, and welcome. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm happy to welcome you to the fifth episode of our show, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Thanks to all of you who tuned in to our last program on Cahokia, the first city of North America. The response to the program was enthusiastic, with many admitting that they had no idea that this earliest grand metropolis on the North American continent is practically hidden away in the eastern suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. Comments centered on the massive area and footprint of this ancient city and its survival as a complex of diverse earthen mounds of various types. Listeners were surprised to learn that these constructs represented ceremonial centers, burial complexes, and large plazas that formed the centers of social interaction, commerce, and even recreational activities. Several questions even centered on the legacy of decades of archaeological excavation in a landscape where the moving of, of massive volumes of dirt has contributed to an increasingly sophisticated knowledge of human lifeways in pre-Euro-American urban America. So I extend my appreciation to our Cahokia experts. I'd like to encourage the listenership to keep the emails flowing, and we welcome call-ins for the present and subsequent episodes. Today's topic takes us back well over 10,000 years before the days of the Mound Builders to another series of firsts in the New World, this time to the initial migrants and inhabitants of the Western Hemisphere. As we move farther and farther back in time, the challenges facing scientists that study the human past become increasingly complex, if for no other reason, because the evidence for earlier peoples leaves fewer material traces, and the search for them requires the application of more sophisticated techniques. As you'll hear in this program, those techniques cross into disciplines and approaches that are not what would be considered pure archaeology per se, but they extend increasingly into the natural sciences, human biology, anatomy, zoology, geology, as well as ecology and climate are all subfields that are integrated into archaeological investigations in response to greater antiquity. In large measure, this is because the climates and natural environments that confronted the earliest Americans were considerably different from those of the present. And the nature of their adjustment to these conditions were, was reflected in their movements and their survival. 
that survival was directly linked to the end of the Ice Age and transformations to regional and local landscapes in its wake. Over the past few decades, advances in the paleoenvironmental sciences or the study of older environments has opened up doors to research avenues that allow scientists to reconstruct ancient geography or landscapes with increased sophistication and accuracy. Climate change, contemporary critics notwithstanding, factored heavily into the picture of the peopling of the new world. So one could argue quite compellingly that an understanding of cycles of climatic change during the 10, 15 millennia of the human settlement in the new world should provide the crusty politicians and decision makers of today with food for thought on how to approach questions such as the survival of a changing planet. That said, I would note that the quest for knowledge from the earliest Americans was an alluring, even a sexy topic in archaeological circles way, way back when I was a grad student, or graduate student, I should say, in the latter half of the 20th century. At that time, it was already assumed that the initial peopling of the New World was linked to what was known as the Bering Land Bridge that physically tied the northeastern end of Asia with the North American continent. Populations migrated across that bridge and dispersed in all directions. That was because, that was when the pervasive and mysterious Clovis culture took hold. Because of their sophisticated spear points, scientists had already hypothesized that the Clovis peoples were big game hunters and that their fortunes were closely tied to the movements of the big game animals, mastodons and mammoths in particular, and that trends to post-glacial warming uh, was also a critical issue here. It followed that Clovis disappeared because of environmental changes, over-exploitation of natural resources, and overkill of the big game by the Clovis peoples and their successors. By the 1970s, later 1970s, my own professional career moved away from that particular topic. But as in the case of most graduate students in North America, the question of what happened to the Clovis people and where they went continued to be a hot issue. At the same time, scientific methods gained a foothold in research archaeology in no small measure because of this question. These advances have accelerated exponentially over the past 20 years in tandem with our knowledge of the earliest Americans. I am pleased and honored, therefore, to introduce my, very, my two very distinguished guests whose careers have helped to chart the pioneering advances in paleo-Indian and early American research. Together, these two scholars have helped structure contemporary scientific methods and brought about innovative, groundbreaking interpretations in this exciting subfield. David Meltzer is Henderson Morrison Professor of Prehistory and Chair of the Department of Anthropology, Southern Methodist University. Dr. Meltzer received his PhD at the University of Washington. His research interests center on the origins, antiquity, and adaptations of the first Americans who colonized the continent at the end of the Pleistocene or the Ice Age. He seeks to explore how hunter-gatherers met, met the challenges of moving across and adapting to the vast, environmentally diverse landscape of late glacial North America during a time of significant climatic change. Dr. Meltzer is the author of numerous books, including Folsom, The Search for Early Americans, and First Peoples in a New World, Colonizing Ice, Ice Age America. Dr. Meltzer is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Dr. Vance Holliday, our second guest, is professor of the Departments of Anthropology and Geosciences at the University of Arizona. He received his Ph.D. in geology at the University of Colorado Boulder. 
His research interests extend into geoarchaeology, Paleo-Indian archaeology, and Quaternary landscape evolution. Much of Vance's work is focused on the American Southwest and Northern New Mexico. Dr. Holliday is also executive director for the Argonaut Archaeological Research Fund, which is dedicated to the study of the earliest peopling of the greater Southwest. He's also done fieldwork in the Pampas of Argentina and the Don River Valley in Russia. Vance has authored and edited several volumes, including Soils and Archaeology, Landscape Evolution, and Human Occupation, Paleoind and Geoarchaeology of the Southern High Plains, and Soils in Archaeological Research. Dave and Vance, it's a pleasure to have you both here. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be on. Hi, Joe. Good to talk to you. You too. Uh, Dave, let's pick up where I left off uh, as to where the state of Paleo-Indian research and early peopling of the Americas was in the late 70s, basically taking us back to the days of Paleo-Indian research and the theories that the Clovis people represented, say, a broadly monolithic culture whose origins were unclear. How did the history of this research develop, and where did it start to move in historical perspective? Could you give us that? Sure. Uh, those were the good old days, 14 years ago, when we thought we had all the answers, and actually this wasn't so much of a complication and a problem. And then there was a sea change in, in our understanding of the peopling in the Americas. That sea change was brought about in the... Um, in the 80s and 90s by some work that was done by Tom Dillahay, then at the University of Kentucky, now at, at Vanderbilt, in which he was uh, able to show, based on a site in South America, a place called Monteverde, that we've got people here in the Americas a whole lot earlier than we thought. Uh, the Clovis ages, radiocarbon ages, that is, generally fall right around 11,000 radiocarbon years ago. And what Monteverde had was uh, materials, well-documented and well-dated materials, that date back to about 12,000. So suddenly we were faced with the prospect of having an occupation in far southern South America that was about 1,000 years older than Clovis, and that forced us to kind of rethink the whole issue of when did they get here, and in train with that, how did they get here? Because uh, as we know, and as we can certainly talk about, there are some... Uh, very clear-cut uh, potential routes by which people could have uh, made their way into uh, the Americas from Asia. You mentioned the Bering Land Bridge. Uh, but once you get to Alaska, it's a whole other step to try and get down into uh, North America. And the timing of those routes and the timing on uh, the age of the Monteverde site raises some interesting questions about how people got here and when they were able to get here and how much earlier than, say, 12,000 years ago they did get here. And Monte Verde is separated from most of the early American sites by a huge amount of terrain in South America. There were certainly sites in South America, but a lot of the work had been done up to that time in North America, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is a problem that, that North American archaeologists, for that matter, South American archaeologists, have been uh, working on literally for more than a century. And... We actually thought um, by about mid-20th century that we had it all figured out. Uh, Clovis really did seem to be the most widespread, uh, certainly the most visible and earliest of the occupations uh, in the Americas. And we weren't necessarily looking uh, or expecting to find pre-Clovis, but there were hints. There were some suggestions that we saw not only in the archaeological record, but increasingly in the uh, 
in other records as well. You mentioned the fact that this is an interdisciplinary uh, approach that we're now taking, and that's very true. And certainly one of the things that came out of molecular biology and genetics in the 1980s was the suggestion that, gosh, the genetic differences that we're seeing between Native American populations and Asian populations suggest that there's a whole lot more time separating these groups than just the 11,000 or so years that Clovis provides. And how do we start to approach addressing that gap, certainly in terms of the DNA and the molecular biological information? What are the advances in that? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's really been fascinating. In the last literally just 20, 25 years or so, um, we've, the advances in uh, genetics and human genomics have been substantial. And one of the things that's, that jumped out in about the mid-'80s was that even though the vast portion of your genome is a 50-50 mix between your parents. I mean, we all learned this in school, right? Uh, what yeah. we now know is that in tiny corners of the human genome, there are, uh, on both the male line and the female line, there are portions that are inherited directly from one parent and one parent only. And because of that, and this occurs in mitochondrial DNA, which everybody gets from their mother and gets passed down mother to daughter to daughter to daughter, you have your mother's DNA, but as a male, you don't pass it along. On the other hand, you have your father's Y chromosome DNA, and you will pass that along to your son and his son and so on and so on. Well, what that's enabled us to do is get a very clear um, lineage, genetic lineage, and by virtue of the fact that on those little tiny corners of the uh, genome, you also have mutations occurring, you can use those mutations as a clock. And you can look at the difference between mitochondrial DNA among Native American groups and Asian groups as a way, and by, it's, it's actually simple math. Uh, the amount of mutations are occurring at a known rate, and you just take the, uh, the number of mutations separating two populations, and you estimate the time that they were once part of the same population. Interesting. I think we will go to break soon, right away, and we will come back and continue our discussion on the biology and the advances in biological evolutionary theory and DNA and the separation of populations and the migrations into the early Americans when we get back after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. 
racing, or the Olympics, we've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back here at Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, we were discussing the origins of the early American populations, and Dave Meltzer was explaining how we identify the breakout of populations. Dave, if you could expound a little bit more on biology and DNA. Yeah, you bet. Uh, one of the things that's been uh, happening in, in the last, uh, again, 20 or so years is that uh, geneticists, really worldwide have been looking at both mitochondrial DNA and Y-chromosome DNA and, and figuring out who's related to whom and putting together the gigantic family tree. And what that tree is revealing is that Native American populations have um, ancestry that goes back to Asia. Uh, it's not entirely clear at this moment precisely where in Asia. Uh, one of the things that is uh, the challenges that we face is that primarily... This is based on modern Native Americans and modern uh, Asian populations, and, of course, populations move. So while we can say that Native Americans are very closely related to uh, Asian groups, uh, we can't necessarily say that the Asian groups that we're seeing in places like, say, the Altai uh, or in northern Mongolia or in southern Siberia uh, have been there for the last 20,000 years, and, there, and that, therefore, that's where the Native Americans originated. We don't know that, uh, but we certainly know that these populations are related, and so when we're looking for the origins of the first Americans, uh, we look to Asia. Now, in terms of the distribution of these sites, I know that certainly when I was in school, the map was just littered with sites across, well, not littered, but there's certainly most of the famous sites of Clovis were out in uh, in the western United States. There was a smattering of sites in the eastern United States, and then there was a big gap uh, going into Central America, and then, as you said, uh, Monte Verde in, in Chile and, and some other sites in the, on the tip of Patagonia. What about the distribution of these sites? What do we know about them versus what we knew about 30 years ago in terms of the geography and the changing landscapes that, uh, were, uh, that occurred during the end of the Ice Age and moving on? Maybe you could uh, give us a little bit of information on that. Sure. Uh, one thing I think it's important to emphasize is how different geography was, the paleogeography, at, say, uh, 10 or 12, 15,000 years ago. You had essentially all of Canada covered by glacial ice. Uh, Alaska was not covered by ice and was connected, as, as you all were talking, connected to Siberia via the Bering Land Bridge. Sea level was... 100 meters, 300 feet lower than it is today. Coastlines were very different, particularly the East Coast. So it was a, it was a, it was a very different place from what we think of as the Americas. And um, so 
the continent north south of the ice was much more effectively separated from Alaska than say Alaska is separated from Siberia today. Um, this, the early sites, one of the things that's striking to me is that some of the early sites we now have in, in North America, and they're, they're controversial still. We have Monte Verde down south, and there are a few others now popping up here and there. And there's a lot of debate over the validity of whether they're truly old archaeological sites. But one of the striking things is, is that they're along the continental margins, at least in my view. Monte Verde is, is near the edge of the, uh, is near the Pacific in Chile. Um, we have a site, uh, probably the best known as Metacroft Rock Shelter, way over in, in Pennsylvania, but towards the East Coast. There's a new one on the radar, Paisley Caves in Western Oregon. There's another one near Milwaukee uh, that 12,000 years ago was just south of the glacier, so is at the continental margin. And then the newest one came up near Austin, Texas uh, last spring, uh, a potentially uh, early, very early site. Again, towards the edges of the of the continent, I, I'm not. I'm wondering if that's a coincidence or if there's something going on there that the early people are sort of nibbling away at the continental margins without going into the interior. But that that's going to await more data. But fairly quickly, the continent becomes covered or covered becomes populated from coast to coast. That's one of the striking characteristics of Clovis artifacts. Clovis artifacts, or artifacts that look like Clovis, named for a site near Clovis, New Mexico, by the way, they're, they're coast to coast. In fact, they're quite common on the surface in the east, but the, most of the buried sites, the ones we, we could dig up, um, are on the Great Plains uh, in the central U.S. or uh, some in the southwest. And, um, and then later sites, um, oh, a little bit younger than Clovis, Folsom, for example, 10,000 10, years, radiocarbon years, uh, we see on the Great Plains. But uh, there, there's, some, there's some geologic issues at play here uh, as to why some sites are buried and others aren't. So a lot of Clovis and farm fields in the east, um, but very few buried ones, uh, more buried sites in the west because of geologic conditions of burial, preservation, and then exposure are letting us find these things. Um, but very quickly, Paleo-Indians, the earliest populations, they're all over the continent. That's something that's been very striking since the very early days, is that whatever Clovis was, it's all over very quickly. Uh, some people have described a population explosion that remains to be seen because we don't have as good uh, control on the age of Clovis from continent margin to continent margin as we would like to have. But certainly in terms of the artifact styles, those folks were all over the place, at least in, in North America, south of the glaciers. And then, of course, the glaciers were melting by that time and retreating, and so more and more land's becoming available. The, the geography is undergoing significant change through, through this time, Clovis and, and later times. And yet Clovis seemed to be, at least in the early days, considered to be a relatively uniform uh, technology which I guess we know now is not the same because it's a very, very distinctive spear point form, right, with, with the flute and, and that kind of a morphology, that kind of shape. What do we know about the, the, the Clovis technology these days that we didn't know before and how diverse are the artifacts themselves at the various Clovis sites that would range across North America and into, into South America as well? Well, it's, <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Well, you have your lumpers and your splitters, there's just clearly a, a basic similarity in the form of spear points, 
from coast to coast. Now, there is, there is variability, and you can get some pretty heated arguments over whether they're really your Clovis, but basically they look a lot alike. problem is we don't have the, the age, the dating. But there are, there are other components of the, of the Clovis toolkit that are for pretty so-called blades. They're, they're flakes that were knocked off of rocks that are very long. They're quite distinctive. They might be six, eight inches long, very uh, well-made in terms of the uniformity and very sharp, and they were used as a basis for a variety of cutting tools. Um, there are bone points that are common, at least in some areas, spear points apparently made out of bone uh, that are associated with Clovis. And then there's some other bone implements that we're not, we're not really sure what they are. Uh, long, very well-made, long, rounded rods, really. Uh, some people have proposed they were uh, sled runners, but it'd be hard pressed to convince somebody in New Mexico that they were once able to run sleds in the high plains. <laughs> but um, those are several of the, the hallmarks. Without getting into the weeds on, on uh, Clovis uh, stone tool technology, those would be a few of the, of the characteristics of Clovis. But the point is the distinguishing, character, distinguishing characteristics. Things don't really change all that much when you lose the points. There are some Clovis characteristics that go away, but when the points when the points disappear, uh, it doesn't seem like that much else in at least the Clovis tool inventory. I'm sorry, uh, doesn't seem like there's that much else that disappears except for the point. That's well, that's what goes away. Now, whether that means there's a culture change or a climate change, that's a whole other issue. And I there's a lot going on at that time in terms of the environment and animals and, and those sorts of things. But the points, they're very distinctive, and they, they go away around uh, 11,000, a little less, 11,000 radiocarbon years ago, or maybe a little bit younger, depending on where you are. If I would That's... just uh, jump in here, Joe, um, to kind of put a, a population uh, context on, on the comments that Vance was making. Clovis looks like a, uh, a rapid dispersal of, of uh, groups across a landscape. And what you would expect if you've got people that are moving fairly fast across space um, and through time, you're going to get uh, sort of the equivalent of genetic drift, and you can just call it cultural drift. So while they're still hanging on to a technology and to a form that they came with, uh, as, they're, as they're becoming more and more separated in space and time, you know, they're developing uh, new varieties and, and new techniques uh, for doing things. So the kinds of things that we're seeing with Clovis that Vance was just describing uh, makes sense in terms of, you know, our understanding of people coming into a new world uh, and spreading out across that new world. Uh, in those days, they didn't have, uh, well, cell phones, uh, iPads, and the like, and so not everybody could keep up with the latest styles. Uh, they're they're going to be isolated for long periods of time, and in that isolation, uh, you're going to get uh, innovation and diversification. So in that connection, I'm going to ask the both of you, are we starting to get any closer to mapping the distributions of late Clovis and post-Clovis, how these populations are breaking out, what kind of traditions they're developing in terms of the artifacts to start with, and, and, and how that geography is changing? Are we getting any closer to that? Well, um, I think we are. There's been uh, a big effort led by one of our colleagues, Dave Anderson, at the University of Tennessee to amass data on the distribution of Clovis and subsequent uh, projectile points, which are, as Vance said, you know, highly useful stylistic markers 
And if you want to read that as helping you map groups on a landscape, you can do that. Uh, and what's coming out of that data is we've got distributions of, of these point styles across North America. It's a spotty map in the sense that um, for reasons that have more to do with how many eyes are looking out on a landscape and what the, uh, the depth of the surface sediments are, uh, some areas are uh, well-known and others are just not well-known. That doesn't necessarily mean nobody was there. It just means that we haven't found much of a record. But what we're seeing is that Clovis really does seem to represent kind of a basement culture uh, in the sense that it is all over. But then starting around, oh, about 10,600, 10,500 years ago, you are starting to get the development of more regional traditions, uh, which really seem to suggest that people are basically settling into uh, different parts of the continent. They're not moving around as much. They're not maintaining long-distance connections, which are... You know, back in the days when there's very few of you on the on the landscape, it's really important to maintain those long-distance connections. Uh, but once the populations start to build up, once people start to settle into different areas uh, and they sort of break off or attenuate those connections they used to have, that's when you're starting to see the development of all these different kinds of regional styles. We're, we're going to break. We're going to break for a couple of minutes, and then I think we're going to start uh, expanding on some more controversial ideas, like the pre-Clovis and uh, the emergence of the post-Clovis traditions. We'll be back shortly. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schildenrein back with uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and the Archaeology of the 21st Century. Uh, we were talking about the Clovis culture, and we are uh, getting rapidly closer to pinpointing its time frame. Uh, archaeologists as professionals very often refer to two uh, primary uh, chr- chronological units. One is called radiocarbon years, and the other is called uh, calibrated or calendar years. De- uh, Vance, why don't you explain a little bit what the difference is on that, and where Clovis starts to settle in in terms of absolute time frames. Okay, uh- yeah, it turns out that in measuring time using the radiocarbon method, which is based on the decay of carbon-14 in, in all living things that have carbon, the, the production of carbon in the past has varied. So our, our ruler has expanded and contracted a little bit. So, for example, Clovis happens to be a, an easy one, relatively easy one. Uh, when, we, when we measure 11,000 radiocarbon years, which is right smack in the middle of Clovis, that is the equivalent of about 13,000 calendar years, but it's, it's not, it's not a 2,000-year offset everywhere. It varies <clears throat> in time, but for all intents and purposes around Clovis, you can add 2,000 to radiocarbon years. So when Dave and I were talking about 11,000 radiocarbon years, it's 13,000 or so years ago. Yeah, so we have to keep this pretty straight, and generally as you go up the time scale and, and closer to time, that gap tends to narrow. There are adjustments made to it, but you're correct. So let's let's try to keep it on absolute years if we can, not radiocarbon years. Uh, one of the concepts that, that was very much in vogue in the late 60s and 70s was the concept of megafaunal extension, extensions, which meant basically that the larger mammals, the mastodons, the mammoths, uh, in response to a variety of different factors, became extinct. And the question has always been, was this a function of human activity, the increasing migration, the increasing population numbers of the, the new immigrants, or is it a function of climatic changes? I would like for both of you to try to deal with that in terms of the latest thinking. Dave? Well, first let's set the stage. We've got uh, about three dozen uh, large mammals that go extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, and they range from the uh, five, six-ton elephants, like you mentioned, uh, through a variety of horses, camels, tapirs, peccaries. There's there's a whole bunch of critters, and they all seem, and I emphasize seem, to go extinct uh, right at the end of the Pleistocene, and coincidentally, uh, right about the time Clovis folks show up. And so there was the thought that these groups came into a new world and looked around and discovered all that meat on the hoof and just started shooting and basically went from one end of the continent to the other, eating their way through uh, elephants and horses and camels and so on and so on. Well, uh, with uh, a variety of folks who have been doing uh, research into this, and with my colleague Don Grayson, we actually took a look, a real hard look, at the 70-odd sites that were supposed to to indicate uh, Clovis hunting that were supposed to show that people had, in fact, uh, killed uh, the, the game. 
And what we discovered out of those 75-odd sites, that really only about 14 of them gave us uh, secure evidence that people were actually responsible for the death of the animal. And more importantly, the only animals that are found in those sites are mammoth and mastodon. So only two out of the 36 genera that go extinct do we actually have clear evidence that people pulled the trigger. But that even doesn't necessarily mean that they were responsible for the extinction of those two genera of mammals, mammoth and mastodon. It only means that they pulled the trigger in those 14 sites. And what we're discovering is that it's actually not clear that all of them did go extinct uh, at the end of the Pleistocene. Some of them may have gone extinct literally thousands of years earlier. And at the same time, we also have to kind of keep in mind that this is the end of the Pleistocene. All manner of things are changing. Uh, Small mammals are changing their ranges. Other things are going extinct that we presumably do not and cannot blame on humans. There's a spruce tree that goes extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, and I don't think anybody's arguing for people coming into the New World shooting spruce trees, right? So there's a whole (laughs) bunch of changes that when you look at the larger picture, you realize it's a lot more complicated an ecological situation than people show up, animals die. Another important point, too, is that this is a global phenomenon. The, The specific species vary but, for example, the mammoths uh, go extinct worldwide. The timing varies from continent to continent, and presence or absence of people varies. In fact, mammoth and people co- coexisted in Europe and Asia for a long time, but they, they go away more or less at the end of the Pleistocene. The timing is different. So, to me, it's important to look at the global picture as well as, as the local picture. It's, it really is a complicated uh, situation, as, as Dave was alluding to, and a variety of animals were involved. Are we seeing any differences in what's happening environmentally at the margins of the ice sheets as the ice sheets are starting to retreat? Is that giving us any more information rather than areas that were in the center, closer, uh, closer, farther south, uh, if you're in North America, farther north if you're in South America, where the modifications in the environment aren't quite as drastic? Well, it's... It, it depends on where you are. There, there are changes. There are changes across the continent of, of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, where the ice is retreating, things are changing a lot simply because you you have ice-free terrain, and the ice gets smaller and smaller as, as the climate warms up. And so the the margins are going through major changes, but the whole continent, to some degree or another, is undergoing change. Uh, I guess you could make an argument that the most rapid change and perhaps the most drastic change is where you go from glaciated to unglaciated landscapes. But that's not. Right. And then, of course, the continental margins are drowning as sea, the ice melts and sea level comes up. So we're actually losing some continental land mass uh, around the margins uh, as the ice melts. But most areas have, are experiencing some changes. The, the problem is, is the direction varies you can't you can't it's not a uniform picture the direction of change varies the magnitude of the change the kind of change how the river is reacting how the vegetation was reacting how the animal populations reacting is is varies it's it's complicated and it's changing fairly quickly as well which of course makes for a, a, a spicier archaeological story because people are having to deal with this at, at some scale maybe not maybe not a generational scale but uh at the scale of probably hundreds of years and certainly thousands of years. Right. And then, of course, there's the recent controversy of the past, say, decade plus, which is the entire question of preclobus. 
which uh, actually came to light to in large measure at Monteverdi. Dave, would you uh, care to discuss what uh, what's the contemporary thinking on pre-Clovis and how compelling is the is, is the evidence for a pre-Clovis occupation? Well, uh, let me back up just just a bit to say that you know through the 60s and 70s and 80s when when other pre-Clovis candidates came online, other contenders were were pushed forward. Uh, and then failed to pass muster. Archaeologists got really skeptical, uh, and we we became fairly insistent that if you're going to make a pre-Clovis claim, you've really got to clear the bar. You can't just kind of squeeze your way over. Um, Monteverde cleared that bar, and when it cleared that bar, uh, lots of folks lined up and said, oh, we've got a pre-Clovis site, too. Um, but just because Monteverde's pre-Clovis doesn't mean that everything that everybody else comes forward with is necessarily a pre-Clovis site. Each of these has to be evaluated uh, independently. And so what that means is that, as you say, um, we're still somewhat uh, careful and skeptical uh, about pre-Clovis claims, and so uh, nobody gets a free pass. There have been some sites, uh, Vance mentioned, Meadowcroft and Paisley Cave, that I think are uh, fairly compelling. Uh, and when those sites get fully documented and fully published, as Monteverde was, I think we'll, we'll be in a much better position to evaluate them. Certainly some of the evidence from Paisley Cave is really quite dramatic. They literally have uh, human DNA that dates back to pre-Clovis times. And so when you've got evidence like that, uh, it's coming from, well, uh, we can say this on the radio, paleo poop. Uh, we've got... Uh, uh, coprolites that have come out of this cave uh, that have produced um, the kind of mitochondrial haplogroups that, in fact, we see among the descendant Native American populations. And so uh, we've got evidence like that, and that's pretty striking. So when all of that material is written up, I think we'll start to fill in the map of pre-Clovis sites. But at the moment, the only one I think that we all feel really, really comfortable about is way down in South America. And on the basis of what criteria are we differentiating pre-Clovis down at Monteverdi in terms of the artifacts, the manufacturing technology, what uh, in particular is swaying you in that right. direction? Right. Monteverdi is a really striking site, and what makes it so is that soon after the inhabitants of that site walked away, they were camping on the banks of a creek, Chinchiwapi Creek, and for um, for reasons unclear, at least to me, um, the creek backed up and turned the site into a bog. And in the anaerobic conditions that resulted, the preservation at Monteverde is just spectacular. It's not the sort of rocks and bones that uh, we're used to. It actually included um, seaweed uh, shells from birds, uh, eggshells. It included potato skins, just a whole variety of stuff that uh, you very rarely see archaeologically. And it's it's got a, uh, a complement of artifacts, uh, stone artifacts, wood artifacts, uh, uh, a tusk, uh, piece of ivory, and it's been uh, very well dated to, you know, as, uh, as I said earlier, about a thousand years more older than Clovis. So it's a pretty striking assemblage. And pretty unique as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily give us a roadmap as to how to find a bunch of other sites just like it because it's a fairly unique uh, geological situation. 
Okay, uh, we're going to get, come back and discuss uh, environments and cultural developments post-Clovis and in other uh, types of locations. Uh, Continental Shelf, for one, is, is one area that has not been explored that has huge potential, but we will do that after these words. Thank you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back with our special guests, uh, Dr. Vance Holliday and Dr. David Meltzer, talking about the earliest Americans and the peopling of the New World. Uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, Pleistocene extinctions. We were also talking about uh, the Clovis tradition. And I know, Vance, you're doing some, uh, some research in northern Mexico and in the southwest that has strong bearing on this particular time frame, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research right now and where you're going with it? Sure, thanks. Um, uh, there's a very high concentration of Clovis mammoth kills in southern Arizona. They've been known for quite a few years, quite spectacular sites, and a question a lot of people have had is, what's going on in Mexico? Because one of the sites is literally 100 yards from the Mexican border. So I've been working with uh, Mexican archaeologists looking for early sites in Sonora and a few years ago we came across quite a quite a spectacular site, a Clovis site um, in Sonora and uh, it took us a while to figure out what kind of animal we had. We had a bone bed and um, eventually when we saw the teeth we, we realized it was not, it was an elephant, it was not a mammoth which is the classic Clovis critter and it was not a mastodon there are some Clovis mastodon sites in the east it's another elephant, much uh, less common in North America. It's called a gomphothere. They were common in Central and South America. In fact, the uh, Monteverdi site has gomphothere remains. Um, 
they're they're poorly represented at all in North America. And uh, our site is the first gonfathir kill in North America. It's a Clovis site. Dave and I saw the Clovis points before they'd even been removed from the ground last winter. And um, the gonfathir is like a mastodon. It's got straight tusks, fairly small. Imagine a big uh, uh, an elephant the size of a big buffalo and with straight tusks. And so we've got uh, Clovis people harvesting, apparently, gothithiers. So one of the interesting things about it is it's, it's another animal on the Clovis menu, but it's, it's only one site. As Dave was saying, there are, what, 14 or so Clovis mammoth sites, and this is a Clovis gothithier site. Uh, it's a long way from saying that they extincted the gothithiers in North America. In fact, they were rare, rare to begin with, and so this... This two, these two juveniles were probably at the fringes of their range. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun um, working in Mexico. It's been sort of terra incognita, and there's now a, a superb team of, of archaeologists, Mexican archaeologists, working on the issue of the first Mexicans as opposed to the first Americans, and it's, it's a lot of fun working with those folks. Are you getting any interesting environmental information? Yeah, uh, it's the site is strikingly like some I've worked on in Texas and New Mexico in terms of the geology. They're uh, they're in lake beds. These animals are buried in lake beds, and that's a pattern you see in a, a lot of places. And uh, it looks its trend looks like what we see in a lot of the Southwest with drying, basically wetter environments changing to drier environments. We have stream deposits switching to standing water lake deposits, and it's in those lake beds that our uh, gomphotheres were killed. I just can't resist putting this in. What about the impact theory? Oh, my God. Uh, okay, real quick. Uh, I think Dave, Dave would probably rather talk about his stuff. But very quickly, this is an idea that's been around for about four or five years now, that there was a, a comet or asteroid or something that landed somewhere in North America on the glaciers, off the glaciers, in bits and pieces as one solid mass that wiped out the animals, extincted the animals, extincted Clovis, set the continent on fire, and changed the climate. Well, it was a very intriguing idea. Uh, hypotheses that explain a lot are always attractive. But very quickly, those of us who are interested in the topic begin to see a lot of problems with the idea. And we, a number of us, Dave and I and some other folks, colleagues of ours at Wyoming and uh, Illinois and around, started testing the hypothesis by re uh, examining some of the, the sections where the, the proponents claim to have their evidence, chemical evidence, evidence of burning. And we haven't been able to reproduce their data, and that's a fundamental tenet of science is, is reproducibility. Plus, right. there's some problems with the model, like the disappearance of Clovis. As I said, it's a stylistic change. That's all. There's no evidence that people went away. They changed how they were making artifacts. So uh, it, we're skeptical. That's what we're supposed to be in science. Uh, if they come up with a, a smoking gun, great. Uh, I'd be happy to hear about it. But right now, they've I, I, got a long way to go to make their case. Let's put it that way. And the famous nano-diamonds? That could be a smoking gun. We're working on that. Uh, that that's all I can say. 
Dave, uh, your research has concentrated very extensively in recent years on Folsom. And uh, how how do you, uh, at this point, read the transition or the breakdown or breakout of, of uh, Clovis to Folsom and how those traditions merge or, or, or segregate? And could you tell us a little bit about that vis-a-vis your own research and your own thinking? Yeah, sure. What's going on at the end um, of Clovis, and, and like Vance, I don't believe they all got um, torched in a giant continent-wide conflagration. Uh, I'll just say that now. Uh, what we're nice. seeing is uh, folks adapting to um, different environments, different regional uh, settings. And Folsom uh, follows Clovis out on the plains and in the Rocky Mountains. And the Folsom groups are living at a fairly interesting time. Uh, there's this one last gasp of the Ice Age. It's called the Younger Dryas, where for a brief period, and we're talking geologically brief, so a thousand years, there's a return to cooler, not necessarily cold, but cooler conditions. But that varies, and it varies uh, continent-wide. And what we're looking at is how people were uh, adjusting to the different uh, environments that and environmental challenges posed by living out on the plains or in the Rocky Mountains during this Younger Dryas period. And this, the particular site that we've been working on for, oh, the last uh, half a dozen years or more is out on the western slope of the Rocky Mountains. And what we're looking at is what appears to be a full-blown winter camp. And it's a winter camp that's perched on top of a mountain that was occupying uh, in one that, what is today one of the coldest places in North America. And yet these folks are here in the winter, and they're likely stuck there because this is an area that's uh, surrounded by, well, the Continental Divide on one side, and the lowest mountain pass into this place is at about 10,000 feet elevation. So once you're in, in the winter, you're probably stuck there. And so what we've been doing is trying to figure out what are these folks doing up here? Why are they overwintering here? What kinds of resources would have been available to them? What was the environment like at the time? And and how did they meet the challenges of being hunter-gatherers in that kind of setting, in that kind of place uh, at that period of time? And what is your environmental record giving you? What kind of reconstructions are you able to put together? Because you do have the younger driest snap, and uh, is it a clean signal where you are or no? Well, it's, it's, it's a good question because we've taken some um, lake cores where we're getting uh, sediment uh, out of these lakes, and from the sediment we can retrieve the pollen, and from the pollen we can infer the vegetation. And what we're seeing is that the younger driest, despite the fact that this particular core uh, is at about 10,000-plus feet elevation, is not that pronounced. Uh, and so even though it was cold and very cold in some parts of North America, here in the Rockies, it actually wasn't that bad. And we're looking as well at the, um, at the faunal record, the animal record. We've been excavating a number of caves, and we're recovering uh, small mammals, which are remarkably good indicators of the environment. And the small mammal populations are getting through without too much impact from the climate change. So as it turns out, it probably still was awfully cold up there, uh, but it wasn't necessarily so cold that it had a it would have had a dramatic impact on people. So you're getting a pretty comprehensive succession, and you're you're at a position where you can start to reconstruct things with a fair amount of confidence. We've got a fairly high resolution record uh, that uh, we're putting together, and it's it's really pretty exciting because it's giving us a, a good look at the ecological and climatic context to which these people were adapting. And on that note, I think we're going to have to start bringing this to a close. 
I want to thank my guests, uh, Dr. David Meltzer and Dr. Uh, Vance Holliday, for ups- updating our perspectives on the migrations and settlements of the New World. I would emphasize that one of the key contributions in this field is the growing connection between archaeology and scientific subdisciplines that allow us to reconstruct prehistory in archaeology through the prism of environmental change. Next week, we are changing our focus significantly as we explore the positive impact of archaeology on ordinary and not-so-ordinary Americans. We'll be looking at the Veterans Curation Project, a government-sponsored program that rehabilitates ex-combat veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan by teaching them archaeological skills. The program pairs veterans with museums and artifact storage facilities. The veterans are sorting and classifying ancient artifact collections that have been lying around and abandoned in overcrowded museum warehouses for decades. As a result of this program, both the veterans and our archaeological heritage stand to gain considerably. My guest will be Dr. Sonny Trimble, senior archaeologist of the Corps of Engineers St. Louis, who is the architect and facilitator of the program, along with guest veterans who are now making significant contributions to our past. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.